You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. So here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. So today's Bible readings are taken from Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 to 40, and Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 23 to 24. So I'll be reading from the CSB version. Um, Please follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Colossians 3. Whatever you do, do it from the heart, as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Well, thank you for reading God's word, and it is again good to be here. So I want to uh, talk about work that makes a difference, and I would like to do it through Scripture primarily, but I'm also going to use a lot of illustrations because it kind of needs illustrations to make it work when you read the Bible and apply it to to work. I want to read one more verse that I've uh, kind of thought about a lot over the years, and that, that verse is Proverbs 12:29, which says, Do you see a person who is skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before insignificant men. Now, uh, people don't always realize that when it comes to their work. In fact, I've interviewed hundreds of people. I wrote a couple books about work. I interviewed hundreds of people. And what I found when I asked people about their work, that um, most often people begin answering the question, what do you do for a living, with two words, and they are, I just. I just teach math. I just answer phones. I just write prescriptions for people who are sick. Some of the most remarkable people I've ever known answer the question, what do you do with the two words, I just. So I have a friend. He doesn't like me to use his name. Um, He likes to be private about the good things he does. His name, for these purposes, is Jonathan Bird. Jonathan Bird um, made his uh, fortune uh, by moving grain a little bit more efficiently, a little bit faster than anybody else in America for a few years. But he didn't just move grain. He's one of these people that has a knack of seeing a business and knowing how to turn it around. 
seeing a business that could make money, but it's actually losing money, and he has a team of people, and they go and they turn businesses around. And he did that with a small company that made ventilators in the year 2019. And do you remember what happened in 2020? So my friend Jonathan Bird, who was a new Christian at the time, he was 62 years old or something, but he'd been a Christian about two years, um, bought this company that was almost worthless and was losing money, and they made about 300 ventilators a year. And um, just after a year, he said, okay, we're going to make a little bit of money this year, and we can probably sell it for a nice profit for me and my co-investors. And then COVID hit, and suddenly the world needed a lot of ventilators. And again, my friend Jonathan is one of these people that has the knack of seeing things. And he saw that there was a General Motors, it's a gigantic, you know who General Motors is? Yeah, okay. I'd have to explain it to you. Um, had just closed one of their factories, uh, you know, only six, only six hours away to the side, and it was idle, and, and he knew his leadership team, and he said, you know, I think maybe we could make more than 300 ventilators a year because there seems to be this gigantic need for ventilators suddenly with COVID attacking people's lungs. And he made deals with the government. He raised money and and entered into contracts with 10 different states in the United States and manufactured 50,000 ventilators in the next five months. For five months, he was the world's leading producer of ventilators. Went from 250 a year or 300 a year to 100,000 a year in about 10 weeks. And when I asked him about his work, he said, I just, I just. Now he also knew better, and when I pressed him, he said, you know, we had an opportunity to do something almost perfect. We faced an economic risk, I'm quoting him here, an abandoned hope of profitability. In other words, they knew they could lose millions of dollars. They also knew if they made, made it work, they would make millions of dollars it would look really bad to profit from COVID. So if they made money, they'd have to give it all away, right? So all he could do is lose money. He said, we found ourselves in the, in, with an opportunity to do an almost perfect thing. Everybody believes they will help their friends when they meet a need. We help strangers, people we hope we will never meet. That was Jonathan Bird, and he still said, I just... Because almost everybody does when you ask them in the first place about their work. Now, it's not the last word they utter, but they say, I just. I just teach math. I just write prescriptions. And there are good reasons to say, I just. Uh, maybe we want to be humble. You don't want to sound proud about what you do because you have pride in your heart. You might want to hide it by saying things like, I just. We might say, I just, because we never hear the words, well done at work. You've been beaten down. And so you feel, you feel bad about your work. Or you might say, I just, because <laughs> you know actually what you do isn't very important. You sell cotton candy to children, and uh, that doesn't bring a great deal of value. You know what cotton candy is? you have cotton candy <laughs> in Australia? I just have to make sure, because I come from Sydney, and people are different in Sydney. Now, Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 that we, should, we can and should offer our work to God. You heard the words a few moment ago, moments ago, but they actually start a little bit farther back in chapter, in chapter 3, the first verse, where Paul says, you've been raised with Christ, and since you have, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Put to death, therefore, evil desires, covetousness, which can strike in any country, where there are a lot of professionals, 
Put to death, therefore, covetousness and evil desire, which is idolatry. So Christ is our life, and because we put on Christ as our life, all through life, we can dedicate our work life to God. That's what Colossians 3, 23 and 24 said. And it said it to, depending on your translation, servants or slaves or bond servants, that is to say, even somebody, Colossians 3, we just read it, even somebody in the humblest of all positions can still dedicate, dedicate their life's work to Christ. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, not for mere men and women, because you know that you receive inheritance from the Lord. You are working to serve the Lord Christ, not just yourself. So let's go back to the words, I just. How many of you think to yourself, I just, about your work? If I interviewed you, would you be inclined to say, what do you do, I just? It can be accurate. Some people do just work for the money. And some people just work for the prestige of having the ability to say, I am an architect, or I am a lawyer. Some people say, I just, because they actually know their work is of very little value. And they're honestly labeling the fact that if their job disappeared, it would make very little difference in the world. But sometimes I trust is wrong, and that is because our work actually is meaningful, but somehow we don't see it. We see it as what we do from Monday to Friday, maybe Saturday too, depending on your boss and the structures of your work. What I do from Monday to Friday, and it's, it's an almost entirely distinct from my life as a believer. But Colossians 3.1 says our life is hidden with Christ, so it's all connected to the Lord. Now, um, I understood from conversations via email with Adam that you're a pretty professional church, and so I'm going to be professorial for a couple of minutes and give you five big ideas about faith and work that come from the Bible. And they help us to see work. They're five, you could say it's just five things, but they're actually helping us see work in a God-centered or Christ-centered manner. That is to say, at best, when we're working, we're like God the worker. So point number one is that work is good even though it's frustrating. Work is good even though it's frustrating. Now, we tend to think sometimes of work as a curse. In fact, secular people, a uh, summary of what Greco-Roman people in the time of Paul and Jesus would say, they would say, work is a curse and nothing more. And if you can get a servant or a slave to do the work, then good. If you can get an animal to be trained to do it, then good. Get rid of the work as much as you possibly can. Of course, that's around today, is it not? We get a machine to do it. We ship it out maybe overseas, somebody else to do it. We we hope that the work goes away. And how many of you hope to retire by the age of 50? Oh, sorry, 40. How many hope to retire by 40? 30? Okay, and so that, that comes out of the idea that work is a curse. But we start with the most fundamental idea, which is that God is a worker. God works, and therefore work, although fallen because of the curse and sin, work is not intrinsically evil. Work is intrinsically something that's good. God looked at his work and said over and over again, it is good. So if you long to be creative at work, I'm a professor, so I ask people to raise their hands. You ever long to be creative at work? Yeah? Raise your hand. Okay. Why? Because God is the creator and he made you in his image. Do you like to fix fix things at work? Do you like to do that? Yeah, why? Because God is the fixer. He's the original fixer. The, The great problem is the problem of sin, which the plan of redemption cures. Do you ever desire to um, finish a job well? Yeah? 
Okay? Guess who said, it is finished? Jesus said, it is finished. He exalted on, even as he was perishing on the cross, that he'd finished the work that the Father gave him to do. In fact, he said in one place earlier, my food is to do the will, my food, my nourishment is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So in fact, God is worker number one, and we should not despise our work. That's big idea number one. Big idea number two is that God worked six days and then he stopped. I'm sure some of you have jobs and supervisors that want you to be available 24-7. And I would urge you to resist that as much as you possibly can because God did not work ceaselessly. God worked six days, pulled back, and said it is good. There's more to God than his work product. And there should be more to you than your work product. We're more than... Working machines work is good, but it's also good to stop and pull back and rest and reflect and ask the question like, where have I been, where am I going, and why? Big idea number three, much more briefly, is that mental work is, exa- is exalted and manual labor is demeaning. Now, if you have that idea in your head, it's a very common idea, but Jesus worked with his hands, didn't he? We say he was a carpenter. Actually, he was the word, uh, I'm doing it, Adam, uh, the word that's used there is actually tectone, which means somebody who works with materials. Jesus probably worked with stone and metal and wood. We would say today maybe he was a construction worker or an artisan, an apostle Paul, made tents. Now, they were both teachers, and so we would say that by their lives, Jesus and Paul both honored or dignified both mental work and material work with their hands. Number four. God calls everyone to full-time service. Now, the myth, of course, is, and we talked about this earlier, Adam, a little bit, the myth is that most work is secular and God only really calls people, really exalts work that is being a pastor or a missionary or a teacher at a seminary or something like that. That's the idea we have. But we would want to say something more like this. Um, anybody who develops the riches of this world, whether they're an engineer or a builder of some kind or someone who works with IT, everybody who works hard and faithful in this world, who, um, who can pray legitimately at the beginning of the day, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Anybody who can pray that as they go to work is someone who's actually doing sacred work. That is to say the work is holy or consecrated, or dedicated to God. That's a very simple test you can use for yourself. Can you pray at the beginning of the day, Lord, use my work to build your kingdom on earth to take care of God's people? If you can't pray that with a straight face, you should probably get another job. If you can pray it with a straight face, then you just consecrated your work to God, and your work is holy. So, another way to say it is the Bible says, What does the Lord ask of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord your God? If in your work you are doing justice, you're showing mercy, you're walking with God, then your work is service to the Lord. We are working at our salvation with fear and with trembling if it's truly dedicated to God. Another way to put it is when we are number five, big idea number five, is that At best, through our work, we become the hands of God. So again, the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? Give us this day our daily bread, right? So if you're a farmer, 
you are with your hands helping people get their daily bread. If you're a, a truck driver, if you work in a grocery store, if you process food in any way, if, if you're a baker or if you sell baked goods, you are God's hands answering the legitimate prayers of God's people, whatever you do. Now, what that means then is we can make a difference in the world. If you're trying to follow me on the screen, we're now talking about making a difference with our ordinary work. We can make a difference with our ordinary work even if you're just driving a bread truck from one point to another to get food for people to the grocery store. So on the way over to, uh, to Australia, I, I flew from Dallas to um, Melbourne, and it's, you know, only, it was only a 15-hour and 40-minute flight, nothing too serious. And there was, but there was, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of turbulence in the air. There were a lot of times when we were just kind of going up and down, you know what I mean? And I was giving thanks for the riveters who fastened the wing of the plane to the body of the plane so we did not go plunging into the Pacific Ocean. Right? Thank God for people who rivet well. Have you ever taken a ketchup bottle and poured it? You put it on French fries here in the Southern Hemisphere? Yeah. And you squeeze it and all, and all the ketchup just blops on your food, right? The world needs people who make rivets and who put ketchup bottles together and tires that don't wobble. In, in these simple tasks, in ordinary things like making soup and making soap and riveting airplanes... We are loving our neighbors ourselves, extending God's care to people. Now, it's ordinary work, but um, ordinary work is good. And even extraordinary work is usually ordinary work, right? You know Thomas Edison, you've heard of him. He held over 1,000 patents when he died. But his comment about it was, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. That is to say, he worked very hard to make inventions that actually were beneficial to people. What that means then is that if your society is anything like my society, there are a lot of people that want to work as little as they possibly can. Yeah? Is that true here? So I, I run into a lot of people, I'm going to say, I'm guessing about the age group here, a lot of people say, I don't want to be a business success. I don't want to be a professional success. I want to work 40 hours a week and make enough money, like $100,000 a year, so I can take care of my scuba diving, scuba diving mountain, mountain climbing, and kayaking habits. Yes? Scuba divers around here? Costs a little bit of money. I want to make enough money so I can still have 20 hours a week to go scuba diving, or whatever it is I want to do. Ocean kayaking, maybe. Now, the big idea then is that God sees our work and sees our work as the first and best place for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. There's some people have the idea that I, I serve my neighbor when I work in a soup kitchen, you know, or distribute food to the poor, work in a homeless shelter. Here's the truth of the matter. You mostly love your neighbor at your work. At work, you have the greatest amount of training. You have a team of people that have diverse skill sets. You have... Um, you have assets in the company where you work, you have concentrated firepower in your work most of the time. And because of that, the team and the money and the time and all the rest, you make a difference in this world. That's, what, that's how you love your neighbors yourself. That's what we read a little while ago in Matthew 25, right? 
Matthew 25 says there will be a day when we all stand before the king, and the king's going to speak to us about the nature of our life. And he does say to some, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But when he speaks to believers, to the redeemed, to his sheep, he says, come, you are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. And the righteous are going to say, when? We don't remember that. We don't remember doing that. And Jesus is going to say, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That is to say, the Lord knows your work better than you do sometimes. The Lord sees the value of your work more clearly than you do at times. So, if in your work you have any role in the process that brings food to the hungry, the Lord is pleased. If you have any role in getting water to the thirsty, the Lord smiles upon your labors and favors them. If you have any role, even rearranging t-shirts you know, at the store or shipping things in boxes, if you have any role that brings clothing to people who need clothing, then the Lord sends his favor to you. If you have any role that brings health or physical healing or care for those who are in prison, that could be literal prisoners, but people maybe who are imprisoned by things like drug addiction or other problems, mental problems. If you have any role in any of those things, then the Lord smiles upon your labors and he sees it whether you, whether you see it or not. Many people, again, look for their, look for fulfillment Outside of work, they want to work 40 hours a week and then have fun the rest of the time. Then there's another group of people that wants to have fulfillment in their work, to find meaning and riches in the work itself. I want to you know, develop skills and become a, a well-known professional, perhaps, and all the rest. But most of the time, we serve God by doing ordinary things, by bringing food and water and clothing and health to the people around us. And we should not despise that. Even if you can't see it, I would ask you to open your eyes and see how even if your thought is primarily about earning enough money to do whatever you want to do or to have maybe steps toward a career, I want you to see that your work as a Christian is to love the people around you and to serve the people around you, even if it's hard to detect. So um, one of my children is an architect, which is maybe why I use architects in illustrations. And she's the kind of student who never made eye contact with a teacher under any circumstances. She probably looked to her teachers like someone who never cared at all about anything. There are a lot of students like that. And a math teacher can teach algebra or calculus to a student thinking, this person's paying no attention whatsoever as they drive to work on a bridge that that engineer, that architect put up. You don't know the significance of what you're doing. Now, I'll speak uh, personally a little bit more. When I was young, I was uh, one of those kids that my main job in fourth grade was to make my neighbors laugh. That's, that's what I thought fourth grade was all about. And I had a teacher named Mrs. Bearer, but we'll call her Wolf because it's kind of like a bear. So Mrs. Wolf uh, figured out what I was all about, and, and after you know two days, she separated me from my friends, and after four days, she put me in a corner at the back of the room, like over there where you are. And after two weeks, I was in the corner, surrounded by three girls that seemed to be unable to speak. And so it didn't matter what I said. They didn't smile or laugh about anything. I was just always in the corner. 
And, none, and even from there, I tried to amuse my classmates and cause trouble of various kinds. Nothing evil, you know what I mean, but just disruptive. And um, she, would give me, she would give me C's that I definitely did not deserve just to punish me and to make my life miserable. And at the end of fourth grade, my family moved. I'm going to tell you what happened when I moved in a second. But when I was in grad school working on my PhD, I was reflecting. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I moved in fifth grade to a new school, and I was afraid to be naughty. And so I paid attention, and I accidentally got straight A's. <laughs> and it felt so good to stop hearing, Danny, you're not living up to your potential. Danny, what is wrong with you? You have all this ability, and you're wasting it. You're squandering it. I, I heard it so much in second, third, and fourth grade that I thought, I literally thought, all teachers say this to all students all the time because that's all I ever heard. And in grad school, I, I decided, you know, it was a very boring, I had to do something. So I wrote a letter to Mrs. Wolf, and I said, Mrs. Wolf, you, I'm sure you don't remember me, um, but I'm writing to thank you for making the life of a naughty boy miserable. You put me in the corner, you surrounded me with good girls, you rebuked me endlessly, you gave me C's I did not deserve. You made my life so miserable that when I moved in fifth grade and accidentally got straight A's, I liked it so much, I've kept it up ever since. I'm going to have my PhD before too long. And I got a letter back about a month later. that said, Dear Mr. Doriani, Mrs. Wolf would have been so glad to read your letter, but she died four weeks ago. She never knew. Now, when I got the letter, I remembered something about Mrs. Wolf, and that is that although the rules had just changed in America, and you could no longer pray before class, and you couldn't read the Bible, which teachers were allowed to do for many years, she defied the authorities and read the Bible to us every day and prayed every day. So I had to assume she was a believer. So now she knows, now she knows that her punishment of that boy that drove her insane was actually a service to many people. And that's, that's the way our work often goes. We just don't see, but God does. The value of the work that we perform for each other and for him. This is, this is, almost a, this is close to a constant for so many people. So I don't know how many of you have ever worked in fast food work, um, but if you've you know, worked for, a, what do you call it here, Mackey D's or something? I don't know. What do you call McDonald's? Maccas, okay. I know everything gets shorter, you know. Welcome to Oz. What's Oz? Why are you welcoming me to Oz? I don't understand. So, anything, so Maccas. And a short, short, uh, you know, quick food service. And if you pay attention, you think, why do these people want to come to this place and buy this food, which is bad for them. It has too much sodium and too many calories and so forth. What you don't realize is that some of those people are really hungry. And they've been driving for maybe a long time. And they're praying that they'll find a store that's open. Yes? And so you're saying, why do you want to buy this stuff? And the person driving up is saying, thank you so much that you're open. I was afraid I would miss supper tonight. Especially if people are driving to Perth. Right? And so we don't see the value of our work. And God says, it's good. Sometimes we think that if we serve God, the best thing we can do at work is to start a Bible study or a prayer group. I'm not against that, but I'm in favor of giving yourself to the work first. 
So when I was in college, I worked at a big uh, restaurant, and it was a pretty secular, we washed dishes. We washed thousands of dishes. And the crew was uh, mostly secular, but there were two Christians, me and a fellow named, I'm going to call him Augie. And Augie was one of these people to walk around the hotel, the restaurant hotel, and, off, and say to people, hey, brother, um, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? Can I help you in any way? And he often tended to do this at the busiest times when the most dishes were coming in. And so the rest of the crew, the dish crew, said to me, uh, hey, Dan, he's one of yours. He's, you know, you're Christians. Can you take care of this, this nymnal who keeps wandering off? And I said to him, you know, Augie, i got to tell you, people kind of like that you ask if you can do anything for them or pray for them, but they also mostly hate it, especially the people who wash dishes that you abandon on a regular basis. So uh, this is their message for you. I'm delivering it for them. You want to you wanna help us? You want to show your Christian faith? Wash some dishes. Don't disappear. And that's... There's, Deep truth in that. If you want to start a Bible study, give yourself to the work first so you're, re- so you're respected, so people see you as a good teammate. Give yourself to ordinary work, and then you can do great things. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about doing great things because Adam told me that you're wonderful people, and many of you are highly talented, and you're early in your careers, you're well-trained, and, and you have a lot of capacity, and people have poured themselves into your life. So I just want to say, speak a few more minutes about what you could do if you are moving beyond ordinary work and want to make a difference in the world through leadership positions, which some of you have and and many of you will have at some point. Let's call it, we don't want to say, uh, I don't want to say uh, change in the world, that's too grandiose. Let's call it changing your corner of the world. Maybe you have a little team of five people under you. Maybe you're an informal leader of some kind. But you can see yourself, you can tell by the assignments that are given to you that maybe someday you're going to be a leader. So, so what do you do as a leader? Well, number one, you need to have a principle. A principle is based on scripture. So uh, I mentioned a pediatric ophthalmological surgeon a little while ago. Um, now I'm going to mention someone who did brain surgery for many years and uh, invented a, a means of saving the lives of people who had cancer behind their eyes and behind the bridge of their nose, uh, cancers that killed every last person when he started, and by the end of his career, maybe 90% of them survived. Now, he, um, he did this in part because God gave him really good eyesight, tiny little vessels, you know, behind the eyes, nerves, things like that. And gave him very steady hands, but he also did follow-up work. And in his follow-up work, he noticed that after he took care of people who had these cancers and other and tumors in their sinuses and behind their eyes, he noticed that the chemo would wipe out the soft tissues and people, maybe 25-year-olds, would be permanently damaged by the chemo that didn't actually do them all that much good. It reduced the chances of cancer returning a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. But it also left them with no salivary glands the rest of their life or the inability to smell. And so he began to think about what he saw in his patients after the surgery. And, and he said, you know, we're, we're giving these chemos and these radiations that are destroying. And God, and this was his insight because he's a Christian, God has put enormous healing powers into the human body. This was not just a statement of faith, but a statement based on his science. It was his faith and his science coming together. And then for the next 20 years, he worked on protocols that are now used 
in many surgical centers throughout the world in which the chemo and the radiation is far less than it used to be, and people, after having successful surgery, retain their tongues and their saliva and their smell. Because they had one principle. God put healing powers in the human body. God made the human body well. And most of the time, when you change the world in a big way, your corner of the world, it's because you have... You keep on thinking and meditating and work on your faith. You see the problem in your workplace, and you say, does the Bible have anything to do with this? And you might hear the answer immediately. It might take you three years till you realize that the Bible actually has something to say to this problem I see at work. So number one, you have to have a principle, a biblical principle. Number two, you need a position. The Bible says in one place that leaders should lead diligently. That is to say, if you're in a position of leadership, you need to recognize that you have such a position. One of my sons-in-law is a CFO of a mid-sized corporation, age of 38. And I recently invited him to a seminar for Christian leaders, and he said, well, I'm not a leader. I said, you're the CFO of a company with $300 million revenue per year. You are a leader. Oh, no, I'm not a leader. I'm just, I just take care of the finances. You have a team of people under you. You're a leader. You have to recognize you're a leader if you want to lead. That's one. You may be don't have a title, but if people listen to you, people go to you, if people turn to you, people report to you, you're probably a leader. And if you are a leader, whether you have the title or not, you should accept the fact that God has given you this place in life. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 says over and over again. If God's given you a life assignment, then live in that assignment. If God has made you a leader, then understand the responsibility to use it, to lead with diligence. Now, the third thing I want to say, and I don't know, again, I really don't know Australian culture. You have to help me a little bit. Do people say follow your heart all the time around here? They tell you that you should follow your passion, follow your dreams endlessly. They do that? I think they do it all over the world. Um, So I hate to say um, you need to have passion because it goes in that follow your heart direction. So I'll say uh, you need passion and perseverance or endurance, which is definitely a biblical value. The Bible commands endurance and perseverance over and over again. If you want to change the world, you want to change your corner of the world, you have to recognize that any time you want to make a change, someone's status quo is being disrupted by you. And therefore, you have to recognize people will fight you, resist you, drag their feet, ignore you, and all the rest. And you have to care about it enough to persevere. Is when you try to change things, there will always be people who say, no, no, for this reason. And when you try to change things, you will always have missteps. And people will say, see, I told you it wouldn't work. And you have to fight your way through it. If you believe it's a biblical principle and you believe God has given you a position of leadership, then you have to be willing to fight for it. Because the world is full of resistance. We make a difference when we exercise our strategic gifts. I'm going to stick with surgeons for a minute more. Um, you know, some surgeons have these high skills, and they also are very aware that if you have high skills, like a pediatric cardiological surgeon, you make a lot of money, and it can lead you astray as a Christian. Uh, you can kill people. Those babies with those holes in their hearts are really little. Their hearts are really small. They can die if you make a mistake. The stress is incredibly high. And then when you save a life, people extol you and that's the dangerous pride and materialism and being crushed by your skills. And so some people who have a lot of skills run away from it. You know, I'm, I'm just going to help parents whose kids have colds. I'll do that. 
And then a child comes along in your town who has a hole in their heart, and you're trained to be the pediatric cardiological surgeon. And you may want to just take care of colds because it's so much safer. You're not tempted by fame and money. But if you've got the skills, you should use it. Somebody invested in you. So you have to recognize what God has, in fact, given you. The Bible says, not once but twice in the same chapter of the book, Gospel of Luke, uh, for everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. So you have to ask yourselves the question, has God given me much? And if the answer is, yes, God has given me much, you're not being proud, you're just saying, look, God gave me more than he gives average people. He gave me a lot. Praise God, thank God. If he gives you a lot, he expects a lot from you. And you need your pastors and your elders to guide you through recognizing what your gifts are and what he wants you to do with this world. Now, there's definitely one more thing I have to say. When I say, if you've got a lot of gifts, you make sure, make sure you use them, don't be selfish. Probably a lot of you are saying, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm guilty four or five times in this sermon. You know, I want to be a kayaker and a scuba diver. I want to work as little as possible. I want to make as much money as possible. I, I feel so selfish. Or yes, I do have skills that I don't want to hone. I don't want to take care of the people under me. I don't want to be a leader. I don't want to use all my gifts. And you're floating around right now feeling kind of guilty. So I want to say something really important. Jesus had all the highest gifts in the world, and he used them in the, in the fullest degree to accomplish what the Father gave him to do, which is to give his life as a ransom, as an atonement for your sins. And he didn't just give it a shot. As I told you before, when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. That is to say, I have paid the debt. I have completed the task of redemption so that my people who have been gifted by me and also failed to use their gifts, my people who want to serve me and also want to be very selfish at times, do not have to stand before me in a position of guilt, but in a position of favor. As Colossians 3 says, united to Christ, his life is ours. Died with Christ, raised with Christ, and he finished the work the Father gave him to do. We will never finish the work God gives us to do. We will always make mistakes. We will always fall short. We, I hope you, you aspire, but I hope you also know that when you aspire and fall short, there is one who did not fall short and gave you all of his righteousness so that you can, out of a spirit of confidence and favor, say, Lord, you've given me much, and I will do as much as I possibly can to do much for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for <clears throat> the gospel that gives us a foundation for all the good work you have for us. I thank you, Lord, for the men and women here whom I do not know and, and realistically probably won't get to know, maybe a tiny bit, one or two. But Lord, you do know us and you know the assignments you've given us, you know the gifts you've given us. You know our propensity to do just enough to get by and just enough to please the boss or um, enough to have a comfortable lifestyle. Forgive us of these things, Lord. Uh, keep us from um, a life of self-recrimination or self-blame, but rather when we falter, teach us to look to you because you do know our weaknesses, you know our frame, you know we are merely dust and you have compassion on us as a father has compassion on children and you do forgive those who ask and restore us. So now we pray that you strengthen us, give us joy in your work and joy in the work you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen.